Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Think of our brothers and sisters in Canada, but not just there, elsewhere, who are trying to figure out how to live in this world, in an ungodly world, with a hope for the future. We likewise have our own issues, our own afflictions. So Lord, let us now draw strength from your Holy Spirit, as we look over his word to us. Give us hope, give us joy. May we see Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Recently, Allison took some clothes to the dry cleaner. Several days passed and at the point of day, she went back to get them, only to find out that they weren't done. The cleaner um, told her they weren't ready and asked her to return in a couple days to get them. And Allison agreed, because that's the way she is. And what are you going to do? I mean, they're not done. Um, so once she agreed, the, the guy behind the, the counter raised his hand, put out his pinky. That's right. He made a pinky promise with my wife. So she went back in uh, the point of day and got them. It was all good. Um, but our lives are built around promises. Husbands and wives make promises called vows. Um, the other day, my kids were talking about a pinky promise. Parents make promises to children. Um, customers, whenever they write a check or use a debit card, that's a promise that the vendor is going to get paid. Um, politicians make promises. We'll leave that there. Employees agree to work with the promise that they're going to get payment. Um, back many days before the years of COVID, little boys would spit in their hand and shake in honor of the spit promise, the spit shake. It's not just a cultural or passing fad, though, these promises. The idea of a promise is woven into the human experience. It's not just a thing. It's a crucial category in our lives. And believing, prom believing a promise, it's always based upon what we know about the person making the promise, but it also looks forward in the future when that promise will be fulfilled. It looks forward in hope. So a, a promise has a past, a relationship with that individual, however short it may be. There's a future, but then there's also a present where we live with our feet in the past and directed toward the future hope of fulfillment. So with that in mind, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And we'll look at the 
verses 3 through 12. So if you want to stand in the honor of reading the Holy Spirit's word to us, if you're able. Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, says this to struggling saints. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were, not, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So from, you may be seated, from this text, my goal is for us to see that saving faith is anchored in the past, has its eyes on the future, and is being refined in the present. And I want to do that by looking at three points in particular. One, the presence of the promise. That's verses 3 through 5. The promise and purpose of trials, verse, verses 6 through 9. And then lastly, the promise prophesied, verses 10 through 12. That's a lot of P's for the microphone. We'll spend most of our time on the first two points, okay? As some background for this letter, Scott had already mentioned, um, this letter was written to several churches in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and it's worth noting that they were undergoing some level of persecution. Peter is writing to encourage them in the midst of that persecution, in that midst of suffering, to be a holy people, a people who reflect the joy and hope of Christ in all areas of life, whether they're dealing as being just citizens of an awful world, the empire, slaves, wives, husbands. Peter is encouraging them to be a people who not only stand firm in the face of trials, but grow because of them. 
Now, behold the amazing work of the Holy Spirit in giving us this book. Peter doesn't waste any time getting to the point. His encouragement to the suffering starts with the very work of God. That's where our hope begins. So let's take a look at verses 3 through 5 and the presence of the promise. Listen to it again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through, a, through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So Christian, this is what is presently true of you. Like Peter's audience, we are exiles on this earth, waiting for Christ to make all things new. Whatever you are facing, and pause to think about what all you're facing, and what your brothers and sisters across the aisle and in the pew next to you, and what those in Canada are facing. Pause to think about the weight of those issues the suffering, the persecution, the grief. Until Jesus returns, life is and will be hard. It will be sad and we will grieve. And that's because sin and its effects remain for now. But Peter wants us to have our eyes opened to the spiritual reality of what God has done and is doing now for us. So what is true of you right now? Verse 3, you are born again. Verse 4, you have an invincible inheritance. Verse 5, you are being guarded. Now how is any of this even possible? Is it because of your works? Your decision, your effort. Look at the subject of this, these few verses. Who is causing it? It's his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. It's by God's power you are being guarded. Beloved, God is the one doing it all here. We are the recipients in these verses, God is active. We are passive. God is the benefactor. We are the beneficiaries. Consider, does someone cause their birth? Does someone earn an inheritance? No. Peter begins his encouragement to weary Christians with a reminder of what God has done for us and what God is doing for us now, even through to the end. Our ability to endure is not going to be grounded in what we have done. It is completely grounded on and supported by God's work in us. It's based on his great mercy. It's not due to us. The worthy are not recipients of mercy. It is the needy, the sinful, the condemned who need mercy. So what does this mercy of God accomplish for sinners such as us, us? What does Peter mean when he says we have been born again to a living hope? 
through the resurrection of Christ. What is this inheritance? What is the salvation to be revealed? All of these are connected. These truths are intertwined. When God causes us to be born again, he does so with purpose, with a goal in mind. There is new life in the believer now. And God promises us a future with him forever. We are born again, a present reality, to a living hope, to an inheritance, for a salvation. These truths in which we live now are present. But notice they are future-oriented. So, Whenever the afflicted saint is dealing with all of the afflictions, the Holy Spirit grounds us and gives us a tool called hope. Our, Lord, our Lord's working is not arbitrary. It's not haphazard. Our new birth is shot through with purpose. And God wants us to have an eye on the promise. And it's here in the promise we live. In the midst of suffering, one of the most powerful tools a person has is hope. Looking past what the eyes can see, knowing what God has done, our souls lean forward toward the promise. The world is full of suffering, people are weary. People hunger, and they hunger for hope. This is universal experience. Everybody gets tired. In Greek mythology, the ancient Greeks tried to make sense of the evil and suffering in the world, and they had a myth about Pandora. They said Pandora opened this box. You've heard of Pandora's box. It's not about jewelry. Pandora opened the box and it releases sickness, death, and evil into the world. But for Pandora and this myth, there was one thing that remained in the box. Hope. So, the problem is, in Greek mythology, is that it's all fake. This isn't real. The Greeks tried to make sense of reality, of suffering. They needed hope, and they concocted this story. The Achilles heel of that ancient Greek myth is that the hope offered is fake. There is no substance to it. Substance to it. The hope offered isn't viable. The Christian worldview, on the other hand, is that we have been born again to a living hope. It's not dead. It's real hope. Our hope is as real as Christ's resurrection. Our hope is secure because Christ is alive. In fact, we were born again to this hope through the resurrection of Christ. Our new birth is one of being united to him. Ultimately, no matter what befalls us, we will live again, just 
as Christ rose from the dead. Now, furthermore, notice verse 3 begins with an emphasis on God, our Father. Blessed be the God and Father. It is this Father who has caused us to be born again. And with a Father comes inheritance. In almost every appearance in the Old Testament, the understanding of inheritance comes in the context of land. The 12 tribes, whenever they came out of Egypt, the goal was that they were going to have land. The year of Jubilee was, in part, dealing with the restoration of the land to the rightful inheritor. Then we see Jesus draw on this understanding and Psalm 37 when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In Matthew 5, 5. At the beginning of this letter, Peter addresses the church, the saints, as elect exiles, which tells them something about how to understand their current situation. Thank you for starting to preach my sermon for me. Beloved, you are exiles on this earth. This globe, in its current state, is not your permanent residence. It is an unhospitable environment for the children of God. But one day, that will change. So do you see what Peter is telling us? He started with what God has already done. He has planted our feet firmly on the past work of salvation. We have been born again. So while our faith is securely planted and grounded in the past, Peter fixes our eyes forward. We lean forward with a living hope. The truth about what God has done has results that will be realized fully in the future. The whole, the whole point, the whole point of the land in the Old Testament was about having a place where the people of God could dwell with their father. Yahweh would be their God, and they would be his people. He would dwell among them. Jesus brings the fulfillment of that. Through the work of Christ, we have a better land. The inheritance, notice what Peter says, is imperishable. It's undefiled and unfading. The promise of a future dwelling with God is substantial hope. But wait, what about current trials? What about suffering? What about persecution? So let's turn to verses 6 through 9 and look at the promise and purpose of trials. In verse 6, Peter tells us, In this we rejoice. What is this? It's this future that, Paul, that Peter has reminded us of. We have present joy because of the hope of a future inheritance. It is knowing that we have a dwelling place with God. With our Father. In short, we rejoice because we have hope. An invincible hope. But Peter, you have to be kidding. Look around. 
Life is hard. I'm mourning the loss of a loved one. Peter, come on. I've lost my job because I'm a Christian, Peter. Come on. My spouse is abusive. Rejoice, Peter? What about my health, my failing health? My last doctor's visit, I got bad news. What about it, Peter? Hope? Joy? I'm supposed to rejoice in this life? Peter, you're out of touch. Grief is real, Peter. It's hard. I don't get it. You're disconnected from reality, Peter. You don't get it. No. Peter is not glib. He's not disconnected. He is fully aware of the griefs that Christians bear. Peter recognizes that Christians suffer, and he doesn't discount our griefs. The difficulties of this life are not lost on the apostle. However, our suffering, the suffering of the Christian, is put in the context of eternity and in the context of our salvation. So Peter first tells us that our suffering is temporary. For a little while, Peter says. Now, that may be your whole life. Your whole life might be one of suffering. It's brief. No matter what you are going through, one day it will be over, Christian. It's hard now. But relief is coming. But brief suffering doesn't mean easy. So what I want you to hear in this phrase, this little phrase, a little while, is the word hope. A better day is coming. The darkness may have hung over you for a long time. And it may continue to loom for a little while. But one day, that darkness will lift. But while the brevity of suffering gives us hope, it's not going to last forever, it doesn't tell us about the purpose of suffering. It just tells us it's going to be done eventually. But why am I going through it? Why do we suffer? If we have been born again to this living hope, why must we suffer now in the present? Can't we just fast forward, Jesus? Get us to the end. Make it all better now. This is hard. We are told, the Holy Spirit tells us, that our trials and the resulting grief we face are only given by God when necessary. Do you see that word necessary in your Bibles? The suffering we endure is not thrown on us by some capricious, impulsive, malevolent deity. There is no randomness in the pain you endure. Peter 
tells us in these inspired words that the trials in your life serve as a venue for your faith to be tested. Now, this is not a foreign concept in the Bible. Acts 14.22, Paul and Barnabas are speaking to disciples, encouraging them to strengthen their souls, and tells them, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, our, our family, we just watched a, a documentary about building a skyscraper. It's called the Steinway Tower. It's got a very small footprint. It's very narrow. They had to maximize um, floor space because they wanted to sell out living residential areas in the skyscraper. It's amazing, amazing feat. And it, the difficulty is they had to make it withstand Manhattan's shearing winds. So there needed to be foundation that was appropriate to the structure so that it could stand. Now, the building's ability to stand strong in the midst of shearing winds is a testament to the intelligence and skill of those who designed the building and built it. So it is with you, Christian. Beloved, when trials come, what holds us up testifies to the designer and the builder of our faith. There may be some damage. It can be rough. Peter acknowledges the trials and the grief are real. Notice in verse 5, though, if we just backtrack a little bit, God is guarding you. You will persevere. He has caused you to be born again, and there's an inheritance waiting for you. The trials you go through are necessary to showcase your trust in Christ, to keep you from trusting any other foundation. It's got to be Christ alone that holds you up. Nothing else. If you rely on anything else, you will fall. Why do these trials exist? Let's drill even deeper. The trials not, are, are not merely about your sanctification. Merely. They are about sanctification, yes, but there's more. Verse 7, he says, These trials are necessary so that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus returns and we are found to have been faithful through trials, persevering to the end, trusting Christ through it all, the result is praise and glory and honor. Now, that could make us theologically-minded folk uncomfortable. I'm letting Peter say it, though. 
The most straightforward reading of this is that the praise and glory and honor is what God gives to us, his persevering children. Is that a little weird to you? Now, before you throw me out of the pulpit, remember what Christ says in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Paul says in Romans 8.30, to those whom God justified, he also glorified. And now, also in 2 Corinthians 4, what does Paul say? For this light momentary affliction, sound familiar? Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That sounds an awful lot like what we were seeing in 1 Peter. Affliction is preparing us for glory. Don't you love whenever you see connections in your Bible? The unity of the Bible keeps me a Christian, okay? It's amazing. There's nothing like it. Remember, in all of this, God is for you. He is for you. This is all designed to be of help to you. To give you hope. He is preparing us for a great inheritance. He is preparing us for glory. He is preparing us for a life of never-ending joy in him. But this requires us to have no confidence in temporary things that will burn. Our faith must be pure. Don't you want that? An unshakable faith? Well, trials prepare us for the promise. An unshakable foundation which results in well done, good and faithful servant. The thing to remember here is that God was the one who caused you to be born again. He gave you life. He gave you faith. He guards you now. And he, des he has designed the trials necessary to get you there. On that great day, God giving you praise and glory is a lot like someone shining their trophies. Yes, the trophies are pretty and impressive, but they all point to the skill of the owner. Right? It tells you a lot about the one who has the trophies when you see the trophies. Right? So, whenever God is presenting us with praise, glory, and honor, it tells us a lot about him doesn't it? What it took him to get us to look that good. Because we don't. Your perseverance in the midst of adversity in the present showcases the beauty of Christ. On that last day, your persevering faith will be praiseworthy because the object of your faith has been sure. Now, do you ache 
for that day. It's hard now, but do you ache for the return of Christ? Do you find your heart leaning forward toward eternity? Do you, like John in Revelation, say, Come, Lord Jesus. That ache, that cry in your soul, that's hope. That is living hope. And it will happen. Now our hearts are prepared for what's said next by Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Oh, beloved, this Jesus, he did it all for you. He purchased this unfathomably great salvation, this inheritance that spans eternity. He died for rebels like us and secured eternal life with him in the future. Life is hard, but it's by design. If it weren't hard, we wouldn't need hope. If salvation were purely in the past, we wouldn't need Jesus in the present, and we wouldn't want him in the future. How can we not love this Jesus? How could we not have some eschatological joy overflowing into the present tense? What joy will wait for us, what joy is waiting for us, is overflowing now. In some sense, in the midst of our sorrow and our grief, and it's done so by the conduit of hope. You know, my kids will stand at our front door when they know company is coming, especially if it's a friend. They open the door so many blasted times. Eventually, they can't contain it, so they start to walk outside, and they walk on the sidewalk in front of the house, back and forth, waiting and peeking around. Their excitement is uncontainable. Why? Because they hate their friend? Because they're indifferent? No, it's because they they know the joy that is coming, and they can taste it. They love their friend. They can't wait for what's coming. And that is not unlike us when it comes to waiting for Jesus. Are you eager for his return, beloved? Now, I think verse 9 could be a difficult verse. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But read it in light of what we're, we've currently seen. How does this love This faith, this inexpressible joy, obtain the salvation of your soul. Through all the trials of life, you persevere. Why? Because you trust Jesus. Because you have an invincible hope. Because you love him. It's like the the little child who is waiting for their friend to come over. And as soon as they see their friend in sight, 
what do they do? They start going toward them. They obtain the outcome of their waiting. Our waiting has been sorrowful, causing us to ache for our friend. We love him. And when we catch a glimpse of him on that day, we will obtain the outcome of our faith. Just like John says in 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, a promise is believable when we have some history with that individual making the promise. We can understand their, their character and their trustworthiness by that relationship. So let's briefly turn to verses 10 through 12 and look at the promise prophesied. I could have stopped at verse 9, but I wanted to highlight the fact that the promise of our salvation and the hope that we have in Christ is not something foreign to the Old Testament. Again, it's nice to see the unity of the Bible. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, as Peter refers to him, that spirit that Christ would send to believers in the New Covenant was present in the Old Testament prophets when they pointed to the great rescuer. The Messiah, he would triumph through suffering. Whether it was the redemption of the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage or the return of the exiles out of Babylon, the prophecies pointed to something greater, to someone greater. Whether it was the atoning sacrifices in the temple or the suffering servant, these were to serve us in the new covenant. They show us our need and they show us the sufficiency of Christ's saving work. Now, moreover, I find it incredibly interesting in this passage, that Peter reminds us that through the prophets, the Holy Spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, how does that serve us? One, the fact that the Old Testament prophets spoke to what would happen in the future means that the prophecies from the past have a, ver a verifiable fulfillment in Christ. We know what Christ did. It's a historical fact, and we know that he didn't stay dead, but rose from the grave. So, that buttresses our faith. And, I think what you see in Jesus' experience in this verse sounds familiar. Suffering followed by subsequent glories. The Christian experience mirrors that. We are undergoing, undergoing trials, and there will be glory. I'm reminded, something, uh, reminded of something in a biography of Charles Simeon. Um, this is John Piper's biography of Charles Simeon. 
So I, I'll quote this. In April 1831, Charles Simeon was 71 years old. He had been the pastor of Trinity Church, Cambridge, England, for 49 years. He was asked one afternoon by his friend Joseph Gurney how he surmounted persecution and outlasted all the great prejudice against him in his 49-year ministry. He said to Gurney, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Suffering, subsequent glory. Jesus, us. The Old Testament serves us beautifully by continually pointing us to Christ, establishing our faith in him and our hope in his second coming. Another way in which the Old Testament prophets serve us is to announce the authority of the Holy Spirit and the, the Christ, the Messiah, who would come for the nations. The Old Testament doesn't just serve Jews. It's to the nations. In Romans 15, 12, the Apostle Paul quotes several Old Testament passages to springboard his missionary journey into Spain. But it's, it, it's this several passages that just show why he has such a desire for the nations to come. So he quotes Isaiah saying, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. In fact, Peter was rightly, writing predominantly to a Gentile church here. Why is this important? Maybe you're here today and you aren't a believer in Jesus. You are sick of the false hope that the world gives you and you are aching for something real. According to the Old Testament, you can come to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter your background doesn't matter your party affiliation. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, or something else. I don't care what box you check. Jesus doesn't care either. You can come and have hope. You can trust him now and walk in the hope of his second coming. Don't leave without the hope of knowing Christ now, if you are a believer already, it also means, church, that we have the joy and the privilege of taking the good news of the promise, the good news of that hope, to our communities. We can offer hope.
to the hopeless. Now, one last thing. We noticed early on that God is the main actor in this passage. Did you notice also that one of the only other things in this passage that believers do? Just scan the passage real quick and take a look at what believers are doing in this passage. Do you see it? Rejoice. For now, our suffering and rejoicing are together. Our rejoicing is mixed with tears. But we look forward to the day when we see Jesus and he lifts the veil of tears from our eyes. One of the most beautiful passages in the Bible whenever Jesus says he's going to wipe the tear from our eyes. Beloved, the one who promised is faithful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are the only hope that we have. You are the only hope that we need. In Christ, we have all the blessings of salvation. So Lord, I pray that our hearts are encouraged by what you are doing in us in the midst of our adversity and that we are reminded often of the hope of a future resurrection, a future land where you will be with us and we will be with you. It's in your son's amazing, hope-giving name that we pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.